You're listening to ReachMD on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. And this is the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. How are relapse rates for autoimmune disease regulated and controlled by hormonal treatments? That's one of several questions we'll be exploring today in this focus on multiple sclerosis research. Joining me today is Dr. Rhonda Voskul, Professor of Neurology at UCLA and Director of UCLA's Multiple Sclerosis Research and Treatment Program. Dr. Voskul, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. MS is a disorder that gets a lot of attention, both in the medical and general press. And much of your recent work involves looking at MS and its connection to naturally occurring hormones. So tell us about that connection. Well, what we've done is we've tried to use situations where MS is naturally made better or worse and tried to understand those situations and then transform them into a therapy, a novel therapy for MS. One of the situations that I'm talking about specifically is the fact that when women are pregnant, they get better. And by that, I mean specifically that their relapse rate reduces by about 80%. And so we wanted to try to figure out why this occurs. What we did is we went to the animal model of MS, which is called experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis, or EAE. We gave several pregnancy hormones to see if any of them could be mediating this pregnancy protective effect. What we found was that estriol, which is an estrogen made by the fetal placental unit, so it's unique to pregnancy, indeed made the disease much better. We then went on to show that it worked through a variety of mechanisms in the animal model, including primarily immunomodulatory mechanisms. We're now pursuing whether it could be neuroprotective. Based on our preclinical data showing that there was a clinical improvement and also immune modulation with the estriol treatment of mice with EAE, we went on to design a pilot clinical trial where we gave estriol to women with MS. This was a small pilot involving 10 patients where they received estriol, which was oral. So it was a pill, 8 milligrams a day. That's kind of nice because all the current therapies in MS, of course, are injections that are taken anywhere from once a day to once a week. So these patients took an 8 milligram pill of estriol every day. And what we showed was that during treatment compared to pretreatment in the same individual, that there was a significant reduction in the number and volume of enhancing lesions on their MRIs. MRIs were done every month. That was basically comparing the six-month treatment period to the six-month pretreatment period. In addition, we looked at their immune cells from their blood and showed that during estriol treatment, they had a a significant shift, which would be considered immunomodulatory. And by that, I mean they had an increase in IL-10, for example, which is thought to be protective in MS, and a decrease in TNF, which is thought to be bad for MS. That's really interesting. Let's talk a little more about this immune modulating effect. What were some of the mechanisms for immune shift that you found with estriol as it relates to MS? Well, this is actually a very interesting story that goes back to pregnancy and why women don't reject their baby. So the baby is half foreign with respect to their proteins, have come from the genes, of course, by the father and half from the mother. And so the baby's actually foreign with respect to some of its antigens. It would theoretically be rejected, but as we know, it's usually not. And so there's been a lot of data done in immunology showing that there is a shift in the immune system to downregulate or away from Th1 or gamma interferon or TNF-mediated cellular immunity during pregnancy, both locally at the fetal-maternal interface and systemically in lymph nodes, spleen, and in peripheral blood. So it was then kind of interesting that MS and other autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis, which are all mediated by these Th1 responses, in other words, gamma interferon and TNF cells migrating to the target organ, of course being brain and MS, joint and arthritis and skin and psoriasis, all of these diseases naturally got better during pregnancy. And so the thought was that since there's this shift naturally 
to downregulate these sort of responses during pregnancy so you don't reject the baby. That's probably why all of these particular autoimmune diseases get better during pregnancy. So the mechanism clearly seems to be immunomodulatory in suppressing some of these cell-mediated immune responses. So are there any data that specifically supports a direct or causal relationship between estriol levels and this immune shift from Th1 to Th2-mediated immunity? Yeah, there are a lot of data done in animals and also a lot of data using human immune cells and treating them with estrogens in the test tube or in the animals and showing that these shifts indeed do occur, downregulation of the Th1 and sometimes upregulation of the Th2 as well. Now, another thing that I found interesting about your work is how you measured this immune shift in non-pregnant women whom you induced into a sort of pregnancy state hormonally. I take it that this was a rationale for avoiding follow-up contrast imaging in actual pregnant patients. Well, actually, in our study, we were not treating pregnant women. We were treating normal women with a pregnancy dose of estriol. So what we were doing is essentially trying to recapitulate pregnancy in a normal woman by giving her the estriol level that she would have had if she were naturally pregnant. So these were women who were not pregnant, but were given estriol pills that would induce a pregnancy level in their blood. And of course, they were scanned pre-treatment and then during treatment with MRI. So you really shouldn't scan women that are pregnant. You can't use gadolinium particularly, and we generally don't scan women that are pregnant unless there's a real medical need to. And just getting back to the immune responses, in your studies, you also found that the subjects had a diminished response to delayed type hypersensitivity reactions, as well as diminished interferon gamma. Is this true? That's right. The late-type hypersensitive response, of course, is we know it the best from our TB tests, hopefully that are negative, but then you have your positive control, which is something like candida or tetanus. We all, as physicians, are familiar with the induration, the red bump that occurs where you inject the site in the skin. That is the classic DTH response. So these immune cells are going to that spot where you've injected the antigen, and that is a classic in vivo human TH1 response that you can actually measure you know, on the skin. The gamma interferon, of course, is a signature cytokine for TH1 responses. And, of course, both of those were decreased with treatment, which is what we expected based on the hypothesis of the shift during pregnancy where TH1 responses are decreased. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. This is Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm speaking with Dr. Rhonda Voskul, who is a professor of neurology at UCLA and director of their Multiple Sclerosis Research and Treatment Program. We're talking today about research on estriol treatment for MS patients. So an obvious question that I think is worth asking here is, what happened with your patients after you withdrew the estriol treatments? They returned to baseline. And in follow-up exams, was there any difference in terms of the course of disease, or did you observe any changes in the trend of relapse and remitting rates? First of all, the trial was too short, and the trial had too few patients to determine effects on the clinical outcome, namely relapse rates. So what we used for this pilot, like most pilots do, of short duration and few numbers, you use biomarkers for relapses. And the biomarkers that we used are the enhancing lesions on MRI and the peripheral blood immune responses. Now, in the next study that I have planned, that will be the primary outcome measure. It will be relapse rates. Interestingly, though, in our study, we did have, out of the 10, we had six relapsing remaining patients and four secondary progressive patients. And not really surprisingly, we saw a greater reduction in the enhancing lesions and the relapsing remittings as compared to the secondary progressives, but that was primarily because the secondary progressives didn't have that many enhancing lesions at baseline, so there wasn't very much to decrease. Whereas, of course, the relapsing remains had more, which is known. It's been known for a number of years that relapsing remains have more enhancing lesions than secondary progressives. So in differentiating these MS populations, the relapsing remitting, the primary and the secondary progressive patients, 
Is it your expectation that estriol treatments will provoke a very different response among them depending on their type of disease state? Primary progressive would definitely be different because I think it's a different entity based on the different genetic background and the possible oligodendrogliopathy that occurs. It appears that the pathology and the genetics of primary progressive is quite different than the relapse-remaining secondary progressive. Now, the relapse-remaining secondary progressive, I think most of us believe, of course, that it's a continuum of the same process early for, you know, 5 to 10 years being relapse-remitting and then around 15 years becoming secondary progressive. With respect to estriol treatment, clearly the anti-inflammatory aspect of the treatment makes it more attractive to treating the relapse-remitting phase. As you know, all the current anti-inflammatory shots work better in relapse-remitting than in secondary progressive. So you would expect the same thing would happen with estriol. The only hope, I guess, that, that estriol would work in secondary progressive is, well, there would actually be two scenarios. There are some secondary progressives that are not in-stage, and they're still having enhancing lesions, they're still having relapses, and so they still have an inflammatory component to their disease. So in those patients, theoretically, estriol could work. There's another more remote possibility, and that would be if estriol were someday shown to be neuroprotective, then it could potentially help the secondary progressive population, but that is a really different question that we're now pursuing. You have to have completely different outcome measures and biomarkers for neuroprotection as compared to inflammation. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing more about that avenue of research, and I'm sure that some of our listeners will be pretty interested in following up on this potentially neuroprotective property of estriol treatments. But just to change gears a little on the subject of MS treatments with hormones, I'm compelled to ask you as a male who would presumably respond quite differently to estriol, what is the role or state of hormone treatments for male MS patients? With respect to men, what we have done in MS is we've returned to the clinic and we've asked, are there any hints there to help us come up with a treatment for men that would be well tolerated. And we found, of course, that it had been known for decades that women get MS three times more frequently than men do. So we went to our mice with the animal model of MS, EAE, experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis, and we gave low doses of menstrual cycle estrogen and progesterone. It had no effect. We overectomized female mice. It had no effect. But interestingly, when we and others went in and castrated male mice, disease was worse. When we followed up by giving testosterone to female mice or to male mice, it made the disease better. So that showed us that clearly testosterone could be protective in young men. So the idea here is that young men who are genetically susceptible to develop MS, when they're 18 to 20 and they have very high levels of testosterone, they generally don't develop it. But what's interesting about MS is that when men get it, they get it when they're a little bit older, probably when testosterone is beginning to decline. What I mean specifically is that when women get MS, they're generally about 20 to 30. When men get MS, they're 40 to 45, 35 to 45, a little bit older. So the question is why? Interestingly, testosterone begins to decline by 1% to 2% per year at the age of 30. The hypothesis is that if testosterone is protective, maybe in a, in a person who is genetically predisposed to get MS, a man, he doesn't develop it when he's 18 or 20 and he has very high levels of testosterone. But then when he gets to be 35, 40, 45, that level begins to wane, and lo and behold, the genetic expression comes out and he develops MS. So based on this and all of our animal models showing that testosterone was protective, we designed a pilot trial giving testosterone to men with MS. This was nice because it was a gel, not a shot. You could rub the gel on the shoulders daily. It's androgel. It's on the market for elderly men that are hypogonadal as well as men with HIV to improve their muscle mass and bone density. In our study where we gave testosterone to men with MS, what we did was we followed them for six months untreated, and then we treated them for 12 months with the androgel testosterone. 
we found was three things. Number one, they had an improvement in cognition. Number two, they had atrophy on MRI pre-treatment that went into three months during treatment. But then after they'd been on the drug for three months, that atrophy rate slowed down significantly to a rate near normal aging. And the last thing was we found that when we looked at their immune cells, that when they were treated with testosterone, it made their immune cells make a neuroprotective factor called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, which is, of course, well-known for its neuroprotective effects. So that's the result of the pilot. We were very intrigued by this possible neuroprotective effect of testosterone. Well, I want to thank Dr. Rhonda Voskul, professor of neurology at UCLA and director of the UCLA Multiple Sclerosis Research and Treatment Program. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. As always, we do look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for listening.